0: Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And I'd like to begin today's podcast, first of all, by thanking John H., Eric K., and Warren E. for their more than generous donations to the salon. And, uh, Warren, I have to say that your donation was uh, way over and above the call of duty. And uh, I do thank you all, uh, Warren, John, and Eric, for your continuing support of the Salon. And I would be remiss today if I didn't also thank the Dope Fiend in advance for what in a few days will be his 200th podcast. And the truth is that he's responsible for considerably more hours of podcasting pleasure than the 200 programs of his own, ...because The Dope Fiend is also the mastermind behind the Cannabis Podcast Network over at dopefiend.co.uk. And collectively, they have produced over 500 programs already. At least, uh, I think I counted right. That's an amazing body of work, I'm here to tell you. And uh, I think that the entire worldwide psychedelic community owes The Dope Fiend a huge debt of gratitude... I can tell you from a personal standpoint that uh, there has been more than one week where I thought about quitting my podcast from the salon uh, just because it was a lot of work. But then here comes another podcast from the Dope Fiend, and uh, I figured that as long as someone like him, who actually has a job and a real life, uh, can take the time to do a weekly podcast, well, so can I. So, Dope Fiend and friends, uh, thank you one and all for many years of friendship and fun, and... uh, And that also goes uh, for you guys over at the GirlReport.com forums. Uh, You're all providing the rhythm for the heartbeat of the tribe. Uh, I don't know what we'd do without all of you right now. And uh, speaking of someone I can't do without, it seems that Terrence McKenna also fills that bill for me. So uh, we'll pick up where I left off in my last podcast, and uh, that is with Terrence talking about where ideologies fit into our pictures of reality then uh, after uh, 20 minutes or so I guess there's a brief pause where they take a break for lunch and uh, after lunch he picks up with a discussion of his time wave hypothesis. Now I'm only going to uh, play the first 20 minutes or so of the time wave discussion today because there's another little sound bite I'd like to squeeze in here also uh, but first let's uh, rejoin Terence McKenna and his friends on a day late in 1997 on the campus of the Esalen Institute in California.
1: Well, an ideology is a, is a simplification of reality where the vast, seething, messy baroqueness of being is put through some kind of rasher of language and comes out grossly simplified. And because it's grossly simplified, it becomes like a kind of algebra of idiocy, where now you can set up these little equations, and they solve themselves, and you get a feeling of satisfaction from that. But uh, in fact, the whole thing betrays the human enterprise. And to give you a graphic example of what I'm talking about, I'm thinking of a scene from a Novel called Corelli's Mandolin by Louis de Bunieres where a guy who's a communist in the Greek partisans during the war, uh, beats a villager to death who has given uh, shelter and food to some non-communist partisans fighting in the, in the mountains. And the protagonist of this particular part of the novel says to this guy as he's beating this old man to death, he says, why are you killing this old man? He is harmless. And the guy without even missing a stroke turns to him and says, it's a matter of historical necessity. This is the voice of absolute fanaticism speaking. And this is the voice of pure ideology. In other words, unconscionable acts the holocaust up to that level of unconscionable acts become intellectually defensible in the presence of a complete corruption of language and and so uh, ideology always paves the way toward atrocity well ideals and ideology are not quite the same thing ideals are are simple and don't knit themselves into vast intellectual structures. In other words, an ideal of mine is to do as little harm as possible. I may not meet this ideal, but it is an ideal of mine to try and, 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 and to do as good a job as I can. But in the name of that ideal... I, I own, I, it, it doesn't lead on, there isn't a therefore. Therefore, what? Therefore, I should become a Mormon. Therefore, I should no longer eat meat. Therefore, I should no longer have sex. Therefore, no, there isn't that kind of implication. But ideology always implies implications. If man is, as Marxists say, an economic creature, Then the following must follow and the following must follow from that. So I think ideals are very close to our emotions. They're things that spring from the heart and are, their boundaries are not well defined and the implications are not clear. I mean, if I say, I, my ideal is to, is to do good for mankind, the next step is not at all clear, but if I profess an ideology, the next step is always deceptively clear. So uh, I think ideologies flatten complexity. You know, people don't like uh, people don't like paradox. I'm not sure why this is. I think it's a quality of print culture. People want closure, they want every uh, program or every intellectual argument or every examination of a phenomena to end with a conclusion, QED, therefore this is what it is. But you don't have to be a rocket scientist to notice that this betrays the complexity of the world. The world is never one thing or even several things. The world always has dimensions which exceed the descriptive machinery that you're applying to it. And I don't know who it was, George Bernard Shaw or Nietzsche or some other 19th century bad boy, but it it has been said that the essence of intellectual maturity is being able to simultaneously hold two contradictory thoughts in your mind at the same time. Now you are actually approaching the beginning of intellectual maturity. But if you're always saying, well, if it's this, then it can't be that, and if it's this, it can't be that, then you have been hoisted on the petard of dualism. And it's more than a joke. To say that dualism is the root of all evil. Uh, of course it is. It's the root of all good. And uh, what really we are given is a seamless continuum of phenomena that we are asked to not to understand. That's preposterous. Why should talking monkeys understand reality? But, but to feel. We can feel. We have an extremely complex body and nervous system and perceptual apparatus which ushers us into feeling. So you have not mastered a situation when you understand it. When you understand the situation, you are probably on the road to catastrophe. When you feel the situation, you are probably moving into a good position than to act in that situation. And often we, in fact usually, we do not understand our feelings. That's a strange thing to ask of one's feelings. If we understand our feelings, it's simply a footnote on our intellectual housekeeping. It is neither necessary nor sufficient. What is necessary and what is sufficient is feeling into the moment. I think this is where we got to at some point earlier in this, that the felt presence of immediate experience is the defining phenomenon of being. If you don't, if you can't reach it, you, you are in trouble. You need some kind of help, psychedelics, therapy, loving kindness, uh, something. And if you can reach it, then you have contacted the authentic domain of 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 being I almost said of humanness, but it goes deeper than that because the the animal world is living in that uh, in that space well, I think because of the good offices of quantum physics and some other things, we are beginning to realize that things like chaos like paradox uh, these are not names for intellectual black holes these are names for the sources of life's uh, richness and its advance its creative advance lies in these things uh reducing as we have done over the past 200 years the universe to a machine Uh, some kind of a machine then robs it of meaning. And then we stand back and look at our lives and our societies and say, how come they have no meaning? It's because we labored like demons to make sure that they didn't have meaning and now we have no one to blame but ourselves for the gross simplification of reality and the betrayal of experience that we achieved in that... uh, In that process. Uh, Yeah, well, yeah. You know, years ago in Canada, there was a political party called the Social Credit Party, and they had a very complex scheme that nobody could understand, and they ran on the platform uh, under the motto. You don't have to understand social credit in order to vote for it. So this is sort of what you're talking about. Why not? Why not? Yes. It, feelings are primary. The primary datum of experience is feeling. And then out of that comes uh, a, a logical reframing of experience, and but the, and then still lower on the rung, and I maintain low enough on the rung that one shouldn't go that low, is an ideological recasting of of uh, of experience, and it's it's a delicate thing. I mean, I'm not offering a simple answer here. It requires constant fine-tuning and intelligence. And to look at, and every day I think we have to, it's almost like we need, what is it that the Marxists used to do? Criticism, self-criticism. We need to be alert to ideology. It's constantly seducing us. Yeah, dialectic. But the idea of criticism, self-criticism, that you constantly, you and your colleagues or comrades, constantly search your behavior for betrayal of the ideology. I think we need to constantly search ourselves, not for the betrayal of ideology, but for the embracing of it and say, oh dear, I'm starting to believe something, (laughs) slap, slap, ah, that feels better. Uh, Uh... because these ideologies are incredibly draining and, and distracting. They, they they get in the way between us and, and true feeling. On the other hand, if you don't apply logical razors to experience, then feeling is open to all kinds of interpretations that become... Somehow themselves springboards to ideology. I, I think it's really important to try to keep things as simple as possible because they will still be hellaciously complex if you are true to experience. The simplest explanation of what is going on here is still maddeningly baroque. So, Throwing on flying saucers and papal plotting and the plans of great Atlantis only further exacerbate the problem. If you just deal with the given of our, of our the fact of your, your history and your destiny, things are quite complex enough. And of course, again, what the psychedelics do is provide a reference point in organisms they, it's like a reset button. It says beyond ideology, beyond cultural programming, beyond language, beyond hope, beyond fear, beyond expectation, there is the raw datum of experience here. Have a dose. Didn't work? Have a bigger dose. Mm-hmm. And if we keep returning to the raw datum of experience then these other things, they will recrystallize around us, but not with the imprisoning intensity that they have for straight people. We know that behind all the, this constipated social stability lies the chaos of the psychedelic experience. It's important to keep it in mind in very unpsychedelic situations. But people who have never broken through the cultural dream take it to be reality and and to commit crimes based on delusions about what is and isn't reality. Well, not to speak of whales and dolphins specifically, but nature as a dynamic field of activity beyond the reach of politicians, image makers, and so forth and so on. Uh, nature is the constant psychedelic companion of the human experience. I, I think, you know, we know this. That's why we crowd into cities and build walls and keep nature at bay. You, If you go into nature alone, and don't eat much and don't speak much. Within 72 hours, you know, the hills speak and the winds confer with you and you are conveyed into an animate, caring, living, natural dynamic. But it's threatening to the ego this is the first time in two hours I've used this word. Uh, but the ego is a, is a, a maladaptive, uh, tumor-like growth in the personality that has been inculcated into you by the toxicity of culture. It is literally the response to toxic culture is the growth of ego. The more toxic the culture, the more the ego is revered as a natural value within that culture. So responding to dolphins and whales and ant hills and termite swarms and these kinds of things is uh, an opening to the natural dynamic that's all around us. Many people never observe nature Except when psychedelics force it upon them. But this is a very, I think if you feel, if you feel afraid of psychedelics, but you want the juice that you may sense there, you know, take up wilderness camping and uh, do it assiduously. And though it's a slower process and you may not have specifically colored hallucinations, the conclusions that you will emerge with are essentially the same as the psychedelic voyager emerges from. Nature is deep, ordered, dynamical, and caring for the project of being. And so should we be. And the order that we seek is the natural order of our uh, of our bodies and our minds in interface with the world, not the unnatural order of ideology, commodification, propaganda and uh, and uh, a misuse of communication. No, I think it's very difficult because the the process of education without anybody quite knowing where the crime was committed has turned from a handing on of cultural values to a handing on of this neurotic behavior around commodification and people are are clueless and they're being used and abused uh, people all Seemingly intelligent people behave in incredibly stupid ways. Uh, the phenomenon of the respectability of, of aimless shopping. Shopping is unconscionable. It's stupid. It's tasteless. It's, it's murderous toward the earth. And yet, uh, people who teach at Esalen will suddenly drop their guru persona and whip out the charge plate and head for Robinson's. What kind of thinking is going on here? They are clearly not alienated enough. Alienation may be for them just a stance, but where they're really comfortable is down at Barney's racking up uh, the charge card. Uh, somehow the, the, the message has to be put across that there are no exceptions to uh, the obligation to decommodify experience. And anybody who, who feels alienated from this orgy of consumerism is going to have to look elsewhere for their values. Uh, I don't quite I I feel blessed because I guess I'm just so alienated that it doesn't touch me, but uh, recently for some reason I had to uh, Lay out my income for an attorney and say how much I spent every month on things like Entertainment and so forth and so on so he called me on the phone He said you declared $15 a month for entertainment. He said, based on your income, do you know how much would be a standard deduction for entertainment? And I said, how much? He said, $700 a month. I said, that's inconceivable to me. What kind of idiot would I be if I... And I said, and I put down the $15 because I knew you wanted something. But in fact, I don't think I spend $15 a month on entertainment. What is entertainment anyway? Uh, So, um, you know... I I, I suppose it just sounds like preaching a kind of monkishness, but what is the charm of all this crap? Can anybody explain it to me? I heard a story about the Dalai Lama. Uh, I mean, let this ricochet around in your mind. The Dalai Lama came to Los Angeles, and so the committee that was there to receive him and make his visit comfortable wanted to do something with him in L.A. that would be uniquely L.A., but that would uh, be amusing for Dolly. So they decided to take him to Rodeo Drive. <laughs> and uh, and uh, basically, they just turned him loose with his translator and said, you know, we'll meet you back here in an hour and a half and uh, check it out. This is a unique place in American culture. So then, after it was over and they were all having their double espresso or the Campari or whatever they were having, uh, the Dalai Lama said, I want to thank you so much for making this experience available to me. I feel I understand Americans so much better now. I saw so many things I wanted. This is the Dalai Lama talking. He saw so many things he wanted. Well, if the Dalai Lama is not immune, my God, what chance have you and I? Uh, If the Dalai Lama can't hold this stuff back, you know, you might as well buy that Herme scarf. Just give up. Give them the $200 for the damn thing and enjoy it. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, as an old anarchist, I can tell you efforts to organize anarchists are so fraught with contradiction uh, uh that I I wish you luck and I'll make a small donation uh but but I I don't I don't think it can be done that way. I think Uh, Yes, (laughs) you will definitely give me $15 (laughs) worth of entertainment (laughs) per month. I'm listening to this
2: and I'm thinking what my father would say if
1: I told him, yeah. Well, I hate to tell you this, uh, but I would never do what you are doing. This may be the ultimate teaching. (laughs) Do not ever again (laughs) spend money to see me. Uh, my God, how much income is going down the drain as the ultimate oral empowerment is given? This
2: is <laughs> yeah. yeah, you run it
1: off well, the temple. Okay, as long as you take it as entertainment, to, that's fine. Uh, I have one more little story. I didn't tell you the story about the two rabbis, did I? Good. This is a, this is my ending story for the afternoon. I don't present it as a summation, uh, but it amuses me. For those of you who don't like Jewish jokes, you will notice as this joke is told that it is easily translated into a Zen mode, a Sufi mode. Uh, I just like the Jewish flavor. There were two rabbis extremely advanced high rabbis, Talmudists, great men of accomplishment. And they were at Temple. And one of them uh, prayed. And he said, Lord... He stood up and he spoke aloud and he said, Lord, I am nothing. And then he sat down and the other guy got up and he said, Lord, I am nothing. And there was a guy there sweeping the floor a custodial person and he thought well people are praying get a prayer in here so he stood up and said uh, lord i'm nothing and the first rabbi looked at the second rabbi and he said so look who thinks he's nothing (laughs) That's it. That's a story about the imagination. Uh, the time wave is, a, is a, a, a variable wave scaled against time and can be scaled against very large amounts of time, even amounts of time larger than the life of the universe, thousands, millions of times larger than that. And you might ask, what's the point of scaling a temporal description over periods of time so vast that there is no reason to assume they ever existed? Well, the answer is that at these transition points, these dramatic shift points, the software automatically, as, as in the course of running the algorithm, keeps track of days to end. Days to, until you get down here to a hypothetical endpoint. Even if this is not billions of years, but trillions of years, it will keep track of this day count number. And what we discovered to our bewildered amazement was these day counts were almost always prime numbers or the product of two primes. Well, I'll answer your question, but it isn't relevant to what I'm talking about. Uh, What I'm measuring, what this is measuring, is the ebb and flow of of novelty and habit. And you've actually led me back to the main track, so we'll get serious and get out a pointer. (laughs) That's always a sign that we're really serious. I don't want to give my ordinary time wave lecture because I've given it enough that the meme is actually established in the culture, and there are dozens of tapes of it and written versions and fights on the internet, and so why should I explain it to you all over again? I'll just assume that in the course of talking about specific issues that relate to it, you will pick up the rules of the game and then if you're just too excruciated by your confusion, you can ask a question and I'll try and uh, answer it. The basic assumption is there is a quality to reality which science has overlooked. Uh, some people in the East have called it Tao. I want to divorce myself from the freight of that tradition and I want to call it Novelty. Novelty is the quality in nature that seeks complexity. That's what it is. And its countervailing force is called habit. So what I'm proposing to you is that we live in a universe ruled by two fundamental forces that are larger than physics and electromagnetism and all of those good things. And these two forces are habit and novelty. And in every situation, whether it lasts a millisecond or a billion years, the Struggle between these two tendencies of the universe can be discerned. Now, it's pretty self-explanatory what these terms mean, but I'll run through it. Habit means repetition of previously established pattern, continuation of a uh, equilibrium situation, a tendency for a system to degrade entropically under the aegis of the second law of thermodynamics, a conservative tendency, a preservationist tendency, habit, right, for crying out loud. Okay, the other thing is novelty, the opposite of habit. What is novelty? It's the new, the untried, uh, levels of complexification previously unachieved, unusual connectivity, creativity, surprise, novelty. And these two things are in locked in struggle over vast scales of time. Notice I did not say eternally locked in struggle. They are not eternally locked in struggle because the good news is novelty is winning. Novelty is winning. If you get big enough chunks of time, though there may be vicissitudes, ups and downs, ultimately uh, the situation ends up more novel than it started out. Uh, Ilya Prigozhin, who got the Nobel Prize for work in non equilibrium thermodynamics, called this the principle of order through perturbation. Uh, a counterintuitive phenomenon in physical chemistry, because for a very long time, one of the strongest held faiths in physics was that the universe is undergoing thermodynamic degradation. In other words, Everything is tending to fall apart. prigogine showed that this is not true, that even in physical systems, there can be, simple physical systems, there can be spontaneous mutation to higher states of order. So what's really going on in the universe is a struggle between these two tendencies. Biology, Represents the emergence of, no, of a very novel set of chemical strategies for the preservation and maintenance of novelty. The emergence of higher animals and culture and language and technology; these things are also novel strategies, building on previously achieved uh, previous achievements in the novelty department building toward our dear selves. And one of the interesting things about this kind of thinking is it gives a new importance to the human world. Science will tell you that we're lucky to be here and we're simply the awestruck witnesses to some kind of incomprehensible thing that has nothing to do with us Mm. anyway. Novelty theory would say, no, no, human complexity represents at this point the apex of accomplishment in the domain of novelty and hence somehow the cutting edge of universal evolution in this moment in space and time has come to rest, uh, in ourselves. So, uh, what else do I want to say about this? Well, let's look at this screen for a minute, and I'll sort of explain the rules of the game. Uh, this is a span of time portrayed along the horizontal axis, as you're used to seeing. In this case, it's 7 billion years, simply because we set it to be so. And this represents the ebb and flow of novelty. Now, here's one moment in the next two hours, if you pay attention. This is the moment. When the wave moves up, habit is increasing, not decreasing. It's counterintuitive if you're into the stock market. In the stock market, we always want it to go up, unless we're selling short, but none of you would do that, I'm sure. So... Uh, In this case, the excitement is where the wave moves down. And if this is seven billion years, notice that what I said is true of this screen. We end up in a far more novel position than we started. We started out up here. Habit one was winning the battle for at least 700 million years along here then it lost its foothold and novelty surged forward almost uninterruptedly, although this is quite a hiccup. It probably lasted 200 million years, this hiccup. Uh, And if you want to get a notion of the scale of what we're looking at, then life emerged from the primordial oceans at the top of this pimple. All this is what's called the archaeozoic and the prebiotic phase of the Earth's existence. Yes. Good question. It derails my plan for economy, but since you had the (laughs) intelligence to ask it, you should probably be told. Uh, The basic data, uh, and I don't want anyone to laugh. Uh, My God, you laugh before I tell you. (laughs) <laughs> so that it doesn't hurt so much. <laughs> uh, the basic data comes out of the Ching. And, oh, thank you for being so polite. If somebody had told me, this is the most powerful attack on this idea, and it begins like this, so... um you want to make a revision in physics based on a Chinese occult divinatory system. Are we getting this correct? Well, in spite of the sneering, let me see if I can make it make a little bit more sense to you. Uh, I'm not going to review what the I Ching is in an environment as exotic as this. That would insult our intelligence. Uh, The interesting thing about the I Ching, even its skeptics agree, is that it seems to work, very puzzling. Other forms of sortilage seem much less certain. Uh, Here's what I think is happening. Uh, First of all, let's look at the Western notion of time as we derive it from Newton. The Western notion of time is that time is what is called pure duration. All time is in Western physics is the place where you put process so that it doesn't all happen at once. Time has no quality. It's pure duration. Think of it as a perfectly smooth surface. The only modification to this doctrine in the past 500 years is Einstein came along 100 years ago and said, in the presence of massive gravitational fields, this perfect smoothness is slightly distorted over very large scales. So we go from perfectly smooth, pure duration to very slightly curved, space-time. But the main idea, which is contiguous through all of these intellectual uh, evolutions, is the idea that the local fine structure of time can be portrayed as a zero-dimensional space. If that's too technical for you, it means that locally it is okay to think of time as perfectly smooth. I say it isn't. Why should it be? This has to do with a form. Remember we talked about sentimentality and how it can distort thinking? This adherence to the idea that time is perfectly smooth is a sentimental notion left over from our infatuation with perfect geometrical shapes when Greek science kicked off about 2,500 years ago. Uh, It took... Uh, Kepler and Copernicus to demonstrate that the orbits of the planets were not perfect spheres because God loves perfect circles, because God loves perfect circles. And one by one, the perfect objects of Greek mathematical and geometric theorizing have been laid aside. The planets do not move in perfect circles nothing else has been found to have mathematical perfection except that this idea of pure duration has been hung on to. And there's a reason for this, and I apologize for the digression, but it's very hard to snip the loose ends on a thing like this. The reason this idea of pure duration has been hung on to is because uh, science modern science does its business through a series of hat tricks called probability theory. And probability theory is the idea that you can learn something useful about a phenomenon. Let's say, for instance, you want to know how much voltage is running through a wire. Strange thing about this value that you come up with is this it is not necessary that it correspond to any one of the thousand measurements that you took. It's entirely possible you will get a value that is not congruent with any one of your measurements. But we say with confidence, well, it's the average. It's the average. Lurking behind this notion, average, is the unexamined assumption that time is completely uniform, that it does not matter when the measurement is made. And now, why do we assume that? Is there any reason to assume that? Well, not looking at nature, no, there is no reason to assume that. Looking at science, Hell yes, there's a reason to assume that. You can't do science unless you assume that. Because science depends on what is called the experimental method. An experiment is you arrange a funny little unusual situation which is designed to cause some phenomenon normally lost in the noise of being to be thrown into high relief. And basic to the idea of experiment is what is called the restoration of initial conditions. In other words, we're going to roll a ball bearing down a ruler and measure its velocity. And we do this. And then we say, restore initial conditions. That means pick up the ball bearing and move it back to the top of the ramp. But now notice that time has passed since the first time the ball-bearing rolled down the ramp. If time is not uniform, then you cannot restore initial conditions. If you cannot restore initial conditions, you cannot make sense of probabilistic data. So we have assumed and preserved this sentimental notion of Greek science because it makes it possible to do modern science. If we were intellectually honest about what's going on, then what we really should say is that probability theory and modern science is the study of those natural phenomena so coarse-grained that an assumption of a restoration of initial conditions does not destroy the integrity of the phenomenon. In other words, it's a lens that can be focused only to a certain depth. And beyond that, it it begins to give false data. Uh, Of course, ball bearings always roll down ramps the same way. Of course, two liquids always mixed together in the same way. But who cares about these things? Uh, What we're interested in are love affairs, dynastic transitions, corporate takeovers, political revolutions, uh, family feuds. And the interesting thing about these things is they never happen the same way twice. Have there ever been two identical births divorces, love affairs, corporate takeovers? Of course not. We would not even expect such a thing. We understand that the complexity of those phenomena ensures their uniqueness.
0: Well, when it comes to talking about the uniqueness of something, I think it is safe to say that the mind of Terence McKenna was about as unique as anything this universe has produced so far. And we'll have more of Terence in this workshop about imagination in my next podcast, but first I want to do a little something different. As I mentioned at the beginning of today's program, I'm going to play another little conversation for you, but it is much more recent, just about a month ago to be exact. And the reason I feel compelled to play it for you right now is uh, simply to let you know that whenever you get together with a few friends, uh, maybe have a toke or two, and uh, then get involved in a rather heady discussion, then you are doing uh, the same thing that fellow psychonauts are doing all over the planet these days. What I'm about to play uh, comes from my friend Alan Lundell, who you probably remember from his work on Mondo 2000 and uh, other influential publications back in the day. The occasion on which this recording was made was the recent Luscious Libra Live Sushi and Birthday Party, which also included DJs, Fire Circle, Hot Tubbing, and uh, the ever-popular Hookah Lounge. So, as you can tell, it was uh, just your average California weekend get-together. Now, at one point during this little event, uh, which included a bunch of experienced trippers ranging in age from 28 to 71, uh, and many of whom were uber-geeks, I should add, well, when one of them brought up the topic of neutrons, Alan grabbed the famous physicist Nick Herbert from the hookah lounge and, Brought him into the conversation that was taking place around the fire circle. And uh, that's about where the following audio recording begins. Now, my guess is uh, that about the only difference between this conversation and one that you might have with your friends in a college dorm room tonight is that Nick Herbert is uh, one of the world's top physicists. And uh, the other people in this conversation are also uh, at the top of their professions. My point here is to show you that your ideas are probably as good as the next person's ideas. It really doesn't matter if you've got a dozen degrees or if you've educated yourself by reading, going to lectures, and uh, other ways. Because once you've uh, picked up a few bits and pieces of ideas here in the salon or over on KMO Sea Realm podcast or on one of the Dope Fiend series of programs or any of the many other uh, great podcasts that are out, out there right now, well, you're as well equipped as anyone to add your two cents to What is ultimately just a lot of semi-informed speculation on most of our parts? However, I I do have to admit that uh, there are some people, uh, like Nick Herbert, who who happen to be considerably better informed about most things than I am. So, now let's sit in on a typical California conversation among a few fellow psychonauts. Maybe we'll uh, see how many of the world's problems can be solved in just a few short minutes. And for sure, we're going to learn that uh, even among the tribe, there are generational gaps and shocks about the ways in which our sacred medicines are sometimes used.
3: Nick, I wanted you to meet a fellow mad scientist from the mountains. You probably know. I don't know. He's talking to me. He's mumbling some serious physics shit, and I thought, you know, you might see if this could be for real. I'm about neutrons being... Exactly equal. Hi. Hi. My name is, is Nick. Nick. Hi, hey, Nick. Michael, Nick, and, and, and Andy. 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 Cool. Yeah.
4: Al yeah, so, yeah, wants for you to moderate this discussion.
3: Yeah, I'm just kind of curious what you think of this. <laughs> yeah, I am right. too. Th- this is
4: something you think about all the time, so I think right. it would be... I'm a real specialist. My specialty is quantum physics. Excellent. Uh, yeah. And you were saying about neutrons?
3: Well, I was saying that from what I've understood, and I was an undergraduate physics major, not a, uh-huh. not a, uh-huh. uh, you know, a enough Floyd to be dangerous. I actually, <laughs> I actually scattered
4: them myself. My experiment took took deuterons, mm-hmm. Uh and hit them in their carbon target, A deuteron is a neutron and a proton, and this carbon it just we were trying to graze the target so it, it would minimally separate the two and then we were going to study the properties of the deuteron by looking at an almost deuteron that was, uh, that was our hope so I was looking at, we couldn't measure the neutrons, they just went through, went through everything, but we could oh, yeah. measure the protons sure. and no. I was trying to measure the polarization, with them. that was my thesis mm-hmm. and Fantastic. you're the first person I've ever I've talked to about this in 50 years. <laughs> Once I got done with that experiment, I wanted nothing to do with it. Well, that nah, that I was so bored. Is that when you took acid? Well, yeah, <laughs> I took time? acid too, but it helped me realize what priorities were, that physics was just, you know, that way down at the bottom mm-hmm. of where the oh, mysteries yeah. were. Mm-hmm. The, the, the real mystery is up here. Uh, but I couldn't think of anything to do, I mean, except do, to take, take to drug and doing drugs. Uh,
3: just, just, just imagine taking uh, taking acid right after an AI final, when in AI you're trying to replicate up here in the brain.
4: It just made your job a hundred times harder, didn't
3: it?
0: I don't know.
4: That was just the best trip of my life, though. That's all I'll say. (laughs) But you realize what a problem, well, not what a problem, what a a gift or what a puzzle consciousness is after you take an acid. Yeah, Uh, yeah. I I mean, Before, you know, you're living a life, you've had some experiences down here and up here. You've had that experience. You, You think you know what life is all about. You take acid. Wow! Now you see all kinds of possibilities that could be you know
3: up here. before then you thought fondly thought that you were actually seeing things with your eyes
4: well was <laughs> that and, and, and i i thought i i was pretty arrogant i i physics, physics, I, mean, I thought i knew you know you know not only what i knew but what i didn't know i thought i knew all mm. the areas but acid right. showed me that there were zillion things that i don't know right. about especially about the mind mm-hmm. the mind is really big and, and hard to understand um,
2: I was I wasn't too disappointed on my first acid trip. It's just that. I, I was kind of expecting more. You expecting <laughs> more? <laughs> I did. I did about I did second generation. Expecting more on your first acid trip? You know, I did at least well, 350 bikes. It was probably like Owsley acid because yeah. I was getting all of that. You know, I was getting Owsley stuff. And but what did, you had heard something that was even greater that you thought you might experience? No, it was just that I, there was a lot of hype about it. You know, it's well, like the pre the pre experience hype. I'd, 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 <laughs> I I I thought that acid is supposed to be hallucinogen.
3: Right. The mar- and therefore, you the should hallucinate, <laughs> see yeah. things that aren't there. Marketing. And when I looked, I just saw what was ordinarily there, except when you close your eyes. Oh
0: yeah. But <laughs> right, uh, but right. then
3: later I learned that everything that you see is a hallucination. So that uh, that showed that uh,
2: really uh, you know my expectations were way off at the beginning. Well, just the fact that most of the time we don't see any auras on each other, that itself is a hallucination. Yeah, absolutely.
4: Well, because, you know, we see things the way a, uh, you know, an ape. We see, we see things that apes need to see, you know, and, 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 you know, slightly advanced apes. But all the other shit, what I would like, uh, we were talking about what, we, what we'd like, you know, technology. Yeah. I'd like some tech that would help me smell like my dog. You know, a, yeah, million, a nose that well, I could ampl- amplify things about a hundred times, like million, or sound, a million times. Or a million times. Wouldn't that be something to see, to, to perceive that world? Talk about a different world. We yeah. would, yes. And uh, I've, I've, I've uh, read uh, hypotheses why we don't have a sense like that. We never get anything done. Well, <laughs> all these senses going around. You know, you follow. You follow. Isn't that
3: where the robots come in?
2: Yeah. Well, well maybe, maybe we survival. didn't need it way up in the trees. Yeah, we are wired for survival. Our perceptions are narrowed down to what—that's right—to what we need to
4: to survive. And so, so yes, acid is in a way is an anti-survival uh, thing. Right. Except for the researchers. Except for <laughs> in in uh, LSD, my problem child, by mm. Hoffman. I love that book. Yes. He, my favorite scene in there was where he's walking with some other German professor and they're walking in the black forest they're stoned to the gills and they're saying, this is too good for the peasants. <laughs> <laughs> Only minds like ours can really enjoy LSD. <laughs> 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 it's, it's, there's some truth to that. <laughs> there is, yeah. A lot of people <laughs> it treat it like a party drug yeah. and don't One look of the for the any particular insights uh, yeah. well, uh, and therefore but, don't find yeah. any. Um, but the way, when, the more ah, mind well, you have, the more like, fun you have when it's mind. fucked up. Oh, yeah. I mean, that. that's another thing, I think. I, I was certainly glad I took I didn't take acid when I was a teenager. Because, you know, now I
2: had really an amazingly complex thing to well, screw thing up. Well, the I, I was I already like reading that. books by, by you know, Alan Watts and R.D. Lang and, and, and uh, you know, all of them, really. Leary and all that stuff way before I did LSD when I was a teenager. So when I finally got around to it, like at age 15. Fifteen? My first acid <laughs> <athletic>. trip. <laughs> I don't know. I took Hoffman's advice and waited until I was like well, I waited until I was 20. Uh, late comer. Good boy. That was about well, the anyway, time for uh, me too. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah me too. But anyway, it was 15 years old and uh, it was this statutory uh, rate. It was just, <laughs> No, no, we were, all, we were all teenagers. We all had it. And uh, we we're New Yorkers, you know, we we're all sophisticated kids. And we were all playing electric guitars and Up stuff. The line. And we really into the I remember listening to the Who before we went out. I was with a, a couple of friends in Brooklyn and three of us went out. Well, at night. It was at night, and before we left, we listened to The Who. He actually put on... What, you took pro- acid and walked into New York City? I lived in New York City. Yeah, I know, but...
4: Let me finish. Anyway, go on. Go okay. on. No, no this is in Amsterdam. This is very,
2: this is very <laughs> interesting. So, uh, so, anyways, what happened was, you know, this friend of ours, he had already done acid, and he had already, he, he was already, like, at, to the West Coast and back, and I had another friend that was an acid dealer that went, you know, from the hate to here, and you know and and so anyway uh he was programming us with music and he played uh every song that he played he just kept changing records ah. to change, hendrix are you experienced the who ah. i can see for miles you know moody blues you know in search of a lost or whatever you know all this stuff specifically designed to prep us and they said okay let's go out Someone and we took the subway to manhattan and uh, it was late at night, and I remember the subway turned into a serpent. And, wow, we're inside the <laughs> esophagus of a serpent, you know. And I remember at one point, there was this group of people that walked by, because people passed through cars, you know, and they, uh-huh, they walked uh-huh. through. And, and they all looked really deformed. And and it was like, they were extremely deformed. <laughs> like certain limbs were out of kilter with the length of other limbs, and just really weird, you know. And they were walking through, and I remember the feeling I had wasn't so much shock as semi-social embarrassment because I I, I didn't want to Could say anything were. to make them feel embarrassed. They really were that way. <laughs> it was really funny. That's a good thinking. And for the whole train ride, one guitar solo was going through my brain. On a loop, and, ah! and it was John Cipollina's solo for a song called Joseph's Many Colored Coat on the album Shady Grove. And if you ever get a chance to listen to that solo, think of me, man. That was a nice moment. But anyway, uh, so we uh, went to Central Park, and we spent a lot of the afternoon. Day? No, at night. At night. It was probably uh, about 10 p.m. Uh-huh, or something. Uh-huh. Nobody was in the park. It was really dark. Nobody but the muggers, you know. But you were, how many (laughs) were afraid of you?
4: Well, how 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 many many were? A little (laughs) too weird.
2: (laughs) How many were there of you? Three? Yeah. Three. uh And it was great because I remember we'd walk up these little hills and and it almost felt like night vision. Maybe the moon was full. Ah. And as I'm walking up the hill, the the feeling of like pressure under my feet from gravity as I'm walking up the hill made my body feel smaller and smaller and smaller. Ah. smaller. And so I felt like I was shrinking and shrinking. Then I got to the top of the hill and gravity was releasing and I felt like I was growing. Ah. I do remember that, you know. And uh, yeah. did you check to see if you were deformed or anybody? <laughs> <laughs> it's not that You'd easy. You looked in the Let mirror, you might you, have, yeah. you might have seen. Oh. It. Yeah, well, no! This is, is what shocked thing. me most of all. I'd look in the mirror and I looked normal.
3: <laughs> the mind is
2: amazing, isn't it?
3: <laughs> but maybe they could see yeah. you in the park, you know, the muggers and all. They were like, "Whoo!" But up that. With that shri- guy? Speaking of shrinking, that brings us back to the original topic, which is, uh, uh, you know, turtles all the way down, basically. Um, you know, there is this theory that in physics that uh, there are worlds within worlds and that it just continues to infinity, turtles all the way down. But it seems to me, from what I've read of quantum mechanics, that there's reason to think that that's not true. That at a certain level, below the level of the neutron, maybe quarks and electrons, you come to a point where there isn't any inner world. That, uh, um, that things like, like uh, fermi dirac statistics and Bell's theorem uh, uh, indicate to us that there's no inner structure beyond a certain point. That if there were, you would have you wouldn't have Fermi-Dirac statistics. You would have statistics like we have in the macroscopic world, where when you th- throw two coins, for example, you have a 50-50 chance of getting heads-tails and heads-tails-heads, heads because the, the two coins are different. You can distinguish between them. And that, down in uh, in, this, in the in the microscopic quantum world, you have like a one-third chance of that, and I mean, the explanation chance for of that all
4: heads, tails, and head and tails, one-third for each of them,
3: one-third for for for, each. for for heads, tails, and tails, heads, because you can't distinguish between them, and the reason why you can't distinguish between them is that all subatomic particles of a given type are absolutely identical. Wouldn't that be something if all of a
4: sudden? Our kind of coins did that?
3: Yeah, absolutely. <coughs> wouldn't
4: that be... Wouldn't, wouldn't that be Change what? money. Yeah.
3: On primal well, level. Isn't that... Doesn't that be the case for coin. the crazy
2: wisdom school of Buddhism? Well, it would seem like there's there, a lot
3: of resemblance between things like, like Buddhism and Hinduism and, business, and, and yeah, physics. Yeah, so I only use um, coins. <laughs> I think there is a... <laughs> in my dollars. view, science has been invented twice. Science was <laughs> invented once back in ancient India. Uh-huh. And they looked at an an inner world, and again, (laughs) in let's say Galileo, 400 years ago, looking at an outer world. What did they
4: discover? (laughs) I mean, what what is Indian inner physics? You know, I kind of wish there was such a thing that you could read about in books, where they would talk about the structure of the mind and funny little things you can do, like if you close your eyes and inhale two or three times, you travel to Mars. Real inner inner technology. Well, supposedly, I don't see any. And uh, in,
3: in the Yoga Sutras, for example, you have this phenomenon of samadhi, where, um, or, uh, where you um, the the brain can focus in uh, on uh, in a in a type of uh, total concentration, and and basically identify itself with things in the external world or the in- internal world, and uh, it's at least claimed that uh, that's another route to knowledge than external scientific experimentation. Now, whether it's true or not, I don't know. It could be checked.
2: I think it's a perceptual validation of science. I've heard
3: that the um, some some Hindu some Hindu texts were very helpful when. Who was the guy who was inventing the bomb? I've heard it, but I don't know. I don't, from it's from not confirmed. The you know, the, different the, different
4: the, the, the bomb.
3: Yeah, the atomic or bomb. perhaps
4: it's a That they, that they consulted the Hindus reality. to, 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 to no, design? no, the, the, the Could text. Could be. Because
3: all perception of the text was influenced. Oppenheimer,
4: when the bomb went off, he was standing like in the desert, oh, oh, right. like like oh, oh, like and top and he says, I have become Shiva, the destroyer of worlds. Right. That's what he quoted. And then when you
3: look at Vishnu, for example, the other, you know, over-god of Hinduism, uh, in Vishnu, the in the, gut, Vishnu is asleep, yeah. <laughs> yeah. dreaming, and the dream is it the is world, <laughs> which is basically a simulation of reality, as far as I can tell. He is simulating People that our world by
4: dreaming it. People that do DMT claim that they see that. It's, a, it's an inner hydrogen bomb, you know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But they claim to see the, the mechanisms of the world, and, and they are
2: kind of dreamlike. Definitely an inner detonator. What's that? At least yeah, an inner detonator. DMT. DMT. Yeah, DMT. I, I've never had it. Right? Oh, I do. You know Will, right? Sure, Is yeah. Will going to be here tonight? He I invited him. I haven't uh, seen him for a long time. The well, he, he presented me to my first full-on <clears throat> DMT experience. Now, did that meet your standards? Yeah.
4: <laughs> <laughs> That's what I've heard I've heard that
2: uh, <laughs> he, he, uh, he put me in a room And the room had like you know posters of like Tron and all these things You know, It was kind of high tech And there was ah. something about the things in the images That kind of affected my hallucination yeah. well, So my uh, I felt like I was in a, It was a real comfortable leather chair And he gave me a pipe load of it A pipe? A whole bowl yeah you smoke it <laughs> And uh And I felt like I was an astronaut. I was in there, I was feeling this G-force, you know, and (laughs) I'm looking. And all of a sudden, I closed my eyes for a minute, and and I saw hallucinating I was going through this long tunnel. And it was like a Fellini movie. There were these little alcoves on either side with these strange people <laughs> in their faces. But I, as soon as I tried to look, it was going so fast. It was, you know, it was really weird. Wow. And, uh, <laughs> and, and the, visual and right the there, thing is, I started seeing that with my eyes closed. But then I opened my eyes and I kept seeing it. Oh, my. oh, <laughs> oh my. Yeah, that's an interesting thing.
3: That There's no reason why not. <laughs> Inner reflecting the outer and vice
2: versa. Oh, it kind yeah. of mixed well, the, the in the brain. A and when you see in.
3: with your eyes, you're really seeing with your brain, and your brain can project anything on the inner yeah. projection screen. Mm-hmm. If it wants to line the two up, it can easily <laughs> do that. Whatever oh, yeah. It's yeah. occupying your yeah. attention yeah. more. I did five meo DMT, but I didn't didn't get a
2: strong experience. It just kind of tripped for a minute or two.
3: Mm-hmm. Ah well, mm-hmm. yeah. you'll know tough. when you do.
2: It's yeah. kind of like the. Well, I think it was just yeah. a combination of things. You know, I did I did a pretty large uh, bowlful. What do you have to
4: take before you see uh, big uh, luminous uh, things connecting all of us? (laughs) And 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 these things shimmer and make noises. I mean, like like my heart and you had my lower
2: chakras. Uh, Mescaline, that happened. You take mescaline, you you
4: begin to see the things that connect people. When I was like,
2: when I was like, uh, I was 16 years old, and uh, I had a mescaline trip with Moon Dog's daughter. Uh, upstate new york we're on a camping trip with my sister and her fiance and some people having fun the four, four of you took it uh, a few of us did my sister but uh-huh. we were up all night and i remember it was warm and and it was all this grass all around us you know and we we're sitting like in lotus positions or whatever and i remember i was looking at her and she was really trippy because i don't know who you remember who moondog was but he was a pretty fantastic character at google anyway uh we looked at, it and she said she saw something around me like you know she saw like colors around me and and when she said that it looked at her and her saying that all of a sudden it opened it up and I saw mm. it all around her too were you connected with colors too yeah ah. it was kind of like a ripple ripples <coughs> you
3: know, ah. coming ah. out of each of us that's pretty good I mean I, my experience was more of a Reboot. <laughs> Reboot? Yes. Sir, Mr. Tech Head You totally got. I mean, it you, you dissolves your ego or any identity of being alive like dirt clods in water, you know? Just
0: <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
3: The hydrogen bomb is not a bad analogy. Uh, are you still uh, there? Uh, you come back. You, you, you come back. We come yeah. back. You recoaless. Oh, yeah, you us. This is like you must trust in your wetware. Wow. a surrender. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but you always come back
4: you know I mean isn't that something I mean that's, yeah, one, that's one of the most it's like ama- a reboot I tell it, you it right. that, a reboot of our, our, our bodies but that's one of the most one of the most it's, amazing it's things good. about psychedelics yeah. almost all of us have reached a point and said I'm never coming back I've destroyed my <laughs> mind completely I'm never coming back you, you always do yeah. Yeah. most all of us right. yeah. uh, and it, it, it is so amazing at least you think you do <laughs>
3: well, <laughs> well, that's, that's what's significant it all depends yeah, on yeah. how wise you are you do it all depends on
2: how wise you are if you think Really high dosage in the back. But if you're lucky, you remember (laughs) some of those. (laughs) Some of those, yeah. So,
4: anyway, you
2: actually came
0: back from the reboot. It took a while. It took
2: at least five minutes.
0: You're listening to the Psychedelic Salon, where people are changing their lives one thought at a time. Well, there's uh, really not much to say about that, uh, other than to say that my guess is that you've been involved in discussions just like that yourself, or at the very least, you've had some of these ideas uh, pop into your head from time to time. So, you see, it doesn't uh, really matter if your next-door neighbor is a quantum physicist or just your token buddy. You can still have as much fun kicking around these strange ideas as anyone And didn't you just love it when Nick Herbert said, (laughs) the more of a mind you have, the more fun you can have when it's fucked up. (laughs) It's those little sound bites in our everyday bull sessions that I love to collect. So to uh, further this cause along, I've added a Skype button for you to uh, click on to leave a voicemail on our salon blog, which you can find by going to www.psychedelicsalon.org. I don't know how or uh, if this is even going to work out, but my thought was that if uh, any of our fellow saloners wanted to leave an interesting message that I could uh, play a few of them here in the salon. So uh, if you're in the mood to Skype us a message, well, please be one of the first to do so. Another little thing that uh, came in this week was a question from Where's Glasses Has Dog, (laughs) which is a handle that uh, would have fit me a few years ago until my beloved dog Igor died. And in case you're wondering, uh, Igor was a big old lovable Rottweiler who played with the children in my neighborhood. Good old Igor. I still miss him today. Anyway, uh, Where's Glasses Has Dog writes, Lorenzo, I just finished Terrence McKenna's True Hallucinations and wonder if you know anything about Vanessa's photography. In the book it states she was documenting the adventure and I think it would be cool to see the places and people described. Well, uh, I don't know Vanessa myself. In fact, I didn't even remember that part of the book. So if any of our fellow Saloners knows Vanessa or can uh, point us to some of the pictures she took, uh, I'll pass that along. I sure would uh, like to see some of those photos myself from that uh, now legendary expedition. And uh, speaking of legends, uh, in last week's podcast from the Sea Realm, KMO interviews the legendary Bruce Damer, who gives an update on the Evolution Grid or the Evo Grid the story of which has uh, now even been picked up by the New York Times. And over at DopeBean.co.uk you can uh, hear a recording of an evening with Dr. David Nutt, who, as you know, uh, created a great stir over in the UK after he was summarily dismissed from his scientific advisory post that uh, was dealing with drug classification. Now, while this isn't uh, a normal podcast from the Dope Fiend, I did find it extremely interesting to hear what some of the world's top minds are thinking about uh, regarding the ways in which governments so cavalierly disregard scientific information when it doesn't suit their needs. So, uh, thanks for going out of your way to record that and uh, podcast it, Dope Fiend. It uh, really was eye-opening for me. Or, uh, I guess I should say it was ear-opening, huh? (laughs) I don't know. What I do know is that uh, I should close today's podcast by reminding you that uh, this and all of the podcasts from the Psychedelic Salon are freely available for you to use in your own audio projects under the Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Sharealike 3.0 License. And if you have any questions about that, uh, just click the Creative Commons link at the bottom of the Psychedelic Salon webpage, which you can find at psychedelicsalon.org. And uh, if you are interested in the philosophy behind uh, all that goes on here at the Psychedelic Salon, you can uh, hear all about it in my novel, The Genesis Generation, which is available as an audio book that you can download at genesisgeneration.us. And for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from cyberdelic space. Be well, my friends. <laughs>